Well, friends, I want to talk to you this morning about hope. Hope. And by hope, I don't mean wishful thinking. Uh, I mean hope as in certainty. Hope as in uh, Paul's words, amidst his afflictions, when he said that I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to me. That kind of hope. Have you ever met somebody with that kind of hope before? That confident assurance. When no matter what life throws at them, they see light through all the darkness. You ever met anybody like that? Hope like that, friends, is some of the most powerful things in all the world. And yet it's hard to find people of hopefulness, isn't it? Because this world is so full of hopelessness, it tends to bludgeon us into hopelessness. Right? The famed atheist Frederick Nietzsche once said, quote, Hope in reality is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of man. What a terrible thing to think of. And yet it's understandable because... Again, life hits us in the face so often, right? And so maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe you're experiencing some level of hopeful hopelessness, I should say. And so the reason for that is because life is, after all, very hard, very difficult. And perhaps the most difficult of all when we think about hopelessness is the inevitability of our deaths. Death haunts us all in all of its different ways, especially maybe as we age or maybe some news, the terrible news, or maybe as some war party descends upon our door. Death haunts us all and tempts us towards a kind of hopelessness. And Scripture agrees that death is the great enemy to be defeated. If only there was one. It might be something of strength that might defeat death. If only we had one that could defeat that great death. Then, if one could defeat death, surely there could be a community that believed in that. It would be a community of hope amidst all the darkness. Friends, I have good news. We have one that has defeated death, and his name is Jesus the Christ. He has defeated it, and he will defeat it in his return. Jesus Christ and the hope in the resurrection and his return is the great elixir of hope that the church is supposed to be. Big idea this morning, hope in the risen and returning Christ. Hope in the risen and returning Christ. Take a look at the passage there. You can see Paul's emphasis on the encouragement of the hope of Christ amidst death. There at the beginning of the passage and at the end of the passage. You'll see that encouragement. You'll see it in verse 13 and in verse 18. This encouragement, look at verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Why? That you may not grieve as others who have no hope. In other words, that you would be grieving with hope. And then slide down to the end in verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Right? That's what he intends to do in this passage is to encourage the church. This passage is not primarily here to inform all of our curiosities about the return of Christ. That's not the primary intent. The primary intent is not a topical teaching in a systematic theology class in a seminary classroom about the return of Christ. That is not the primary intent of this passage. The primary intent of this passage is from the heart of a pastor to his people that are grieving the loss of loved ones who have died. Maybe that's some of you that are grieving the loss of some Christian parent or friend. Paul means to orient that grief in order that they might be encouraged amidst their grief. 
Now, we've documented how much this newfound church here in Thessalonica has suffered in its initial days of treasuring Christ together. We've seen that a lot, right? We've been learning that. You can look in 1 Thessalonians 3, 4 about these afflictions. For When Paul says, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. So perhaps some of these afflictions are referenced to the fact that they have lost some people. Maybe some in their church, these afflictions, people in their church community have died because of persecution, maybe because of uh, just the natural course of life. We aren't sure. The text doesn't tell us. But what we are sure of is that Paul is aware of how death is able to discourage to the point of hopelessness. So he writes to say, for us that are in the faith, for those of us in Christ, we grieve, yes, but we do not grieve like the world. We grieve as those that have hope, even in the face of death. And where does this certainty, where does this hope in the face of death amongst Christian friends and brothers and sisters and parents, where does that hope come from? How can we have such confidence and hope in those days? Verse 14, well, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, through Jesus, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And that language of falling asleep, of course, is a a well-known metaphor to indicate the death of the body. The body appears to be asleep, and one day it will awaken at the uh, resurrection, or at the return, I should say, of Christ. And so we know that Paul believes that uh, the body may be asleep, but the soul that is in Christ immediately goes into the presence of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, absence in the body is presence with the Lord. Philippians 1, Paul writes, right, that it's better to me to, to... to to depart and be with Christ, for that would be far better. Jesus on the cross said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So we know that the soul immediately goes to be with God, but the body is sleeping, waiting for that return, that resurrection. The soul of the Christian will eventually uh, join with that body to be with Jesus, as we'll consider. But this hope of bodily resurrection the Christian has in the face of death is due to the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead, right? Because Christ has been raised from the dead, therefore we are in Christ, therefore we have the promise of being raised from the dead ourselves. Jesus is that first fruits. And when Jesus came uh, in that first coming, as we'll think about at Christmas time, that incarnation, when he came, he knew that he would going to defeat sin and death in the resurrection. That was a core part of his mission. We can think about this when uh, he spoke to Martha, who was mourning the loss of her brother. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. This was at the heart of his mission. He knew that. He was conscious of it. It had to be. This resurrection had to be at the core of his mission. Because otherwise, if he does not defeat death, he's no different than any other religious leader that's still dead. See, if Christ was the Christ, the Messiah the Son of God, come to rescue us from our sin and lead us on into eternal life, he would have to strike the death blow to sin as evidenced by his defeating it in a resurrection, by defeating death. The wages of sin, Paul writes in Romans 6, the wages or the payment of sin is death. This is why death comes. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus has, if Jesus has not defeated our sin unless he has made that evident in his resurrection. If Jesus does not raise from the dead, then our faith, friends, is absolutely pointless. 
This whole thing is a waste of time if Christ does not raise from the dead. Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, where he says it plainly. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, just a few verses down, if in Christ we hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So if you're not a Christian, you're here this morning and considering the Christian faith, this is at the heart. If Christ doesn't raise from the dead, you should feel sorry for us. Seriously, that's exactly what Paul is saying. You should think we Christians are pitiable if Christ doesn't raise from the dead. Because we would still be in our sins and death would still reign. The bodily resurrection, friends, is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you do not believe it, if you do not trust it, if you do not treasure it, simply put, your faith is futile. You are not a Christian. If you reject the bodily resurrection of Christ, you are still in your sins. You are not a Christian, even if you say you are. That's not my words. That's Paul's words. Paul says that this resurrection is of first importance. He writes that in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4, where he calls it. He said, Christ died for our sins. This is a matter of first importance. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's a matter, Paul says, of first importance. And you can see that in our passage. Take a look again there in verse 14. He's referencing the church there. Since we believe, the church believes, since we believe Christ died and rose again, even so God will bring us with him, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He then goes on to argue how that happens. He then goes to argue, support that argument for those of us that believe how this resurrection happens. So verses 14 to 17 mean to support his argument of our own resurrection and the hopefulness that we have therein. Which has him to then conclude that since this is true, since the Christian will be raised from the dead, bodily raised from the dead, uniting our souls and our bodies together at the return of Christ, since that's true, Christians will, like Christ, bodily raised, we will be with the Lord. Always be with the Lord. Therefore, we have hope. As opposed to those that don't have that hope that don't have the hope of the bodily resurrection, that they die and they are apart from Christ. And so therefore, they're hopeless. And maybe this explains some of your hopelessness this morning. Maybe you've some begun to taste the hopelessness of our cultural moment. You've tried to find your sense of meaning, your sense of purpose by looking not from without and out, but within. You've tried to look for meaning and purpose inside by giving in to your desires. By living out your own truth, as it were. By going along with what we have been told to do is good, right, and true. By living in our definitions of our own. Instead of God's clear definitions of what is good, right, and true. Making God into your own image. Maybe this is explaining some of your own hopelessness. Because you begin to see that when looking in to find meaning and purpose and not looking up and out. has led you into some level of hopelessness. We talked about this last week a bit. Remember last week we considered the love of God and set against the world's definitions of love. And if you remember, we talked about how love as defined by the world is what we call that eros love, that erotic love. It's a love for the worthy. You're attractive to me, therefore I'll love you. And the second you're not attractive to me, off you go. 
That's a world of perf- that's a love of performance that makes up so much of the definitions and evaluations of the world. You have to perform. You have to perform. You got to get a better job. You got to do more. Right? You got to go to the right rallies. You got to vote the right way. Wear the right, wave the right flag, and wear the right hat. And then I'll love you. And if you don't, I won't. If that's you, remember we talked about this last week. Like that's 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 exhausting, as opposed to the love of God in the gospel, wherein Jesus says. While you were enemies, Christ loved you and died for you. This this non-performative, grace-based love leads our hearts to be quieted in the world. We don't have to perform, but instead we go and live holy lives, endeavoring to live out the love of Christ and obey His commands, not not to earn the love of God, but because we already have it. And so that's the difference between the gospel and the world's love. And this week, we're looking at the passage and we consider the hopelessness of the world and the hopefulness that the Christian has. This passage shows what we need to have an answer for, namely this inevitability of death. There's got to be, if we're going to be hopeful, we talked about love last week, what about hope? Well, there's got to be an answer for death because that's that great inevitability that nobody wants to consider. And so if that's what you want, friends, unconditional love and hope, that's what you find in the gospel. You can see that. Christianity speaks directly into the world as it is. It addresses our fears. It addresses our uh, hopes and fears. It addresses, even exposes our guilt and shame while addressing, I believe, the inconsistencies of the world's thinking and loving. In other words, friends, we don't have to make the Bible relevant to 21st century America. It already is. Because the author of this book is the author of the world that we live in. He knows what is wrong with the world. He knows why it's wrong. And he knows the fruit of what is wrong. And he not only knows that it's wrong and why it's wrong, get this, he knows how to fix it. And he's willing to enter into the story in order to fix it. Can you imagine William Shakespeare writing himself into the story to fix the problem? Well, that's exactly what God has done in Christ. Look at that word in verse 16, and I want you to circle that word, himself. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. He will come in Christ to save. This second coming of Christ will come in order not to save. He's already done that in Christ, but in order to judge the world and therefore make the world right again. God doesn't sit up in heaven, friend, like an old man on a porch shaking his fist and telling us to get it together and get off my lawn. That is not the gospel. He gladly enters into the world that he made knowing we were the ones, not him, we were the ones that made it hopeless. We were the ones that initiated the death of the world. And yet he enters into the world by substituting himself in Christ on the cross for those that believe, taking our sin, taking our failures, and then overcoming them. Because of his perfect sacrifice, he then is able to overcome it in raising for our justification, that bodily resurrection thus providing for us not only an example, but the power of forgiveness and the power of eternal hope in the resurrection, providing the power and the hope that we need in a world gone wrong. The gospel of Jesus Christ, friend, is the answer to the imaginative story that you're trying to live out in your own head. Christ is the meaning. Christ is the purpose. Christ is the end, and I might add the beginning. And we see that not only in the death of Christ, but in the resurrection of Christ. He's the one, he's the one that we live for. He's the who, what, when, where, and why in this world. 
Hope and love, friends, are not found as we are told. Hope and love is not found in sex, in drugs or alcohol, in entertainment, in your work or workplace friends, or even in your self-expression or self-autonomy. Hope and love are not even ultimately found in marriage and family. That's not the purpose. Although those things are wonderful and good as we celebrated this morning. Hope and love are to be found in the love of Christ, in the person of Christ that gave himself up for us on the cross and overcame it in the resurrection. And friends, this is why Paul writes what he does in verse 17. So we will always be with that one that overcame it. So we will always be with the Lord. Apparently the church was concerned that somehow the dead in Christ might miss out on their hope and their love. Somehow the people in the church began to like Christ is so beautiful and so wonderful. They have gotten to the point where they thought they might miss out on seeing him and being with him. Or maybe in particular, seeing him at that glorious return. And the whole point of this encouragement that Paul is writing here is to say, no, we will always be with our hope and our love. We'll always be. And we'll always be together. You can be encouraged in that. And so, friend, if you're grieving the loss of a loved one, or you're grieving the loss of even in some sense yourself, and that you are so full of hopelessness and you don't know where to turn, friend, that very hopelessness is what qualifies you to come to Christ. He is our hope. He is our love. His resurrection and His return. His commands and His community are the pathways of peace. And so, friend, turn from sin. Be born again in Him. And follow Him, not as another experiment in self-fulfillment. No, the opposite. Die to yourself and live to Him and for Him that you might find eternal life in all that that means. Find that hope, find that love that you were meant to find. Because in Christ you can find an encouragement and an unshakable hope that even in the greatest loss, you'll be able to live, stand up with hope. This is the heart of what we Christians are about. Friends, I have gone on record as saying that it is my flawed opinion that the brightest days, the brightest days, and yes, the darkest nights of the Christian faith are in front of us here. As the ideologies of our nation continue to fall apart and reap the darkness of their ideas, there, friends, the gospel will shine ever brighter here in churches that fix their eyes, not on relevance, but on Jesus and his resurrection and his return. And so come to the light of Christ and find hope. Find a future so bright and so steady as to anchor you in the brightest day and the darkest night. And so let's now consider that as Christians, this great hope. Let's now consider Paul's argument. This great hope that we Christians have in the face of death. And I, at the beginning, I want to emphasize those two words that you see there in verse 16. In Christ. Do you know, beloved that the most often used description of the people of God in the New Testament is in Christ. It is not Christian. Did you know that the Bible, the New Testament, only uses the word Christian three times? And not always very positively. And yet, 165 times, this is the description of the Christian, of the people of God. They are in Christ. And the reason for that is because in Christ defines our union, right? We see that symbolized in baptism. The reason for that in Christ, it defines where we get our life and why we live and where our hope is found. We are who we are because of our association 
to Christ. We are in Christ. He has wed himself to us by his mercy, such that those who turn from sins trust and treasure Christ. He, Jesus, then becomes our shield, our strength, our life, our reward, our hope, our home. Because he has wed himself by his grace to us, like the husband, right? That marries the pauper and she becomes the queen. It's because of him. Because of him. We're in him. He, Jesus, represents us before the Father. And through Jesus, God will bring us into our resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth forever. Jesus is like Noah's ark. We float above the judgmental waters and arrive safe in a new world with evil swept away by the flood of God's judgment. So take a look in the passage. We see this. Let's let this passage, guys, inform our biblical imaginations. Beloved, let this be like a trailer of a movie that we are living in, a little preview of coming attractions. Let this build your anticipation in the same way that it would build your anticipation if you were to go and wait on a great hero to come and see. Let our minds, our imaginations be informed by what's ahead of us in the return. Take a look at verse 15. We see, to begin with, this is a word from the Lord. Remember, he's encouraging. This is a word from the Lord. Paul is uh, really trying to highlight his authority and what he's about to explain. His authority. This is from the Lord. This likely refers to the word of Christ himself in Matthew 24, where Jesus' explanation is almost identical to Paul's here. But it could mean, some believe that this is the Lord has spoken through Paul to give them this word. So one of the two, each of those would work. I think it's more in reference to Christ. But nevertheless, this is an authoritative interpretation of what's going to happen. And then he goes on to say, We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, will not precede those that are already dead in Christ. And so the Thessalonian church evidently were concerned the dead in Christ were going to miss out on the glory of Christ's return. And Paul says, not only is that not the case, but they're ahead of us on the line. They go first. The dead in Christ have a better position, as it were. They go first. Verse 16, the Lord himself will descend in from heaven. So in other words, what we have here explaining what's going to happen is Jesus' prayer is going to actually come to fruition. When Jesus prayed, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's exactly what we read in verse 16. He comes down to have heaven descend upon the earth. And it's important to know that while Paul does use some apocalyptic language here, kind of end-time language, which can sometimes be poetic and figurative, here in this passage, the big idea is quite clear in that there is this visible bodily descent by Christ himself that comes. This is no spiritual return, in other words. This is a visible return of Christ, uh, him coming in all of his glory, as our church's statement of faith marks out. Right? That's a visible return of Christ. And he'll return, we see, with three successive calls. Uh, you can see there that there will be first this cry of command, presumably from the Lord. Secondly, it'll come to the voice of the archangel. So presumably the Christ calls, uh, the archangel then hears, right, has this voice that goes out. This is probably Michael. You can read about Michael in Jude 9, who's the archangel. Cry of command by the Lord to Michael, the archangel that gives this voice, then thirdly results in the sounds of the trumpet of God. Right? Again, apocalyptic language here. So big idea is what Paul is trying to say to us is this return is going to be unmistakable. You're not going to miss it. 
It's going to be loud. It's going to be evident. It's going to be clear. You're going to know. Everybody on planet Earth will know. After this cry, we then learn there's this sound. There's this trumpet. There's this voice. Christ returns. Everybody knows. We learn. Then Paul says, then the dead in Christ will rise first. So the Christian dead will go first. My grandmother rises before me if Jesus comes back today. That's what he's saying. We know from other passages of Scripture, everyone will be raised. That should be clear. Other passages of Scripture tells us that everybody is going to be raised. Those in Christ and those apart from Christ. And those apart from Christ, those not trusting in Christ, they will be risen to be judged and thrown into an eternal hell. That is straight from the lips of Jesus himself and Matthew 25, verse 41. Paul will talk more about that aspect, this judgment portion. He'll talk about that in 2 Thessalonians. That'll be somewhere around about March of next year. We'll consider that. But here, remember the point. Don't forget what he's meaning to do. He's trying to encourage the church. That's why all of this is here. Don't lose sight of that. He's not necessarily interested at this point in talking about what happens to those apart from Christ. He's trying to encourage those that are in Christ and died in Christ. So, Thus the description, the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17, then we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Okay, lots of work to be done in this passage. Let's take a word. That first word, caught up, you see there, that's where we get our word that some of you have heard before, that word rapture, right? So those still living at the time of the return of Christ, that are in Christ, Uh, those that are still living at the time of Christ, uh, Christ appearing will be, quote, caught up together, raptured together with them, with the ones, the dead that are already raised, with the dead in Christ that have preceded him. So then at this point, this is a wonderful thought, guys. Christ returns, Christ appears, the dead in Christ are raised bodily, souls, bodies come together, they go first, and then those that are alive, they then get their resurrected bodies We then come together with them. So now there's this beautiful thing. They meet with Christ, and it's one big church. No more local churches. One universal church all together. Right there. Such a fun thought. And we come to meet Christ together in the air. This portion of in the air could mean a number of things. It could mean the physical air. We physically go up in the air, but we also think about passages like in Ephesians 2 where it says Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Perhaps that's what's going on. It's just referencing the fact that Jesus is going to be ruling the world in every real sense and casting out Satan and the like. But nevertheless, this meeting in the air, we need to think about that meeting for a minute. What do we learn happens when we meet? What's this about? Christ comes down. We go up and meet with him. What happens in the meeting? What happens, we might even say, after the meeting? Uh, So, because that's what's going on in this passage. That's being talked about couple of interpretations. First interpretation is the meet the Lord in the air means that those in Christ, they'll come together, right? We will go up to the Lord as he descends. We'll go up to the Lord. We'll meet with the Lord in the air. And the Lord Jesus will do a kind of U-turn. He will come down and he'll go back up, right? And we will all that are in Christ, the dead and the alive that have their bodies, he will kind of come down, do a U-turn. We go up to him and we go back up to heaven, which then triggers a seven-year tribulation where there's carnage, and at the end of that seven years, there's a kind of second, second coming, right? When the Lord and his people come down to the earth to initiate that thousand-year reign that Revelation 20 talks about. That's one interpretation. That's what I was taught growing up. 
I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's what's going on in this passage. Although I want to be clear, you may believe that. And if you love the gospel, we're good, right? Let me share with you what I think is going on here in this passage. This word here, this meet together in the air, that phrase is only used two other times in the New Testament. And those two other times give us a lot of help as to what it means. All right, and the other portion, one other, those other passages that the old, that the New Testament uses this phrase of meeting together in the air is found in reference to the return of Christ explicitly, Matthew chapter twenty-five, verse six. There, Jesus is telling the parable of the ten virgins. Five of them are ready for the return of the bridegroom after a cry. Sound familiar? All right, and after the five that are ready, it says they come out to meet him. Same words. And then they go back into the party, right? In other words, the meeting, this meeting of going out to meet him is like going out to the driveway to receive someone special and then taking them back in to the house. When I was a kid, I don't know how my grandparents knew this because we didn't have cell phones back in the day. I know kids, you can't believe that. Like, well, how did you live without cell phones? But we did. It was amazing. I don't know how we did it, but somehow we did it. And somehow my grandparents would always know when we were going to pull in. We lived in Florida. They lived in Nashville. We would drive up there, and it would be whatever, 10, 12 hours. And they would always be standing at the front door. And we would get out of the cars, and we'd walk up to our grandparents. They'd be so happy to see us. We'd give them a hug, and we would cry, and then go back inside. That's the picture here. That's the image here. Or maybe another image would be, right, you've seen at the White House these pictures. So a dignitary comes in, and right, the president goes outside and meets them when they pull in, and they go into the White House. That's the image of this passage. That's what seems to be more explicable to this passage. That's Matthew 25, 6. We also see in Acts 28, 15. That's the other one. Uh, Acts 28, 15. Paul references how some Christian brothers know that Paul's going to come to Rome. Again, how did they figure that out? I don't know. They didn't have cell phones back then either, but nevertheless, they did, right? So they go and they hear that Paul and the boys are coming to Rome. And it says in Matthew, or sorry, Acts 28, 15, they go out in front of Rome and greet them. And then they go back into Rome. That's the same image, same idea in all three of these passages. Acts 28, 15, Matthew 25, 6, and here 1 Thessalonians 4. This meeting is a going out to meet them in, a, in front of them and then going back in after having received them. Now, it's fun when you stop and think about this for a moment. It is the unmistakable moment when Christ returns bodily to judge the living and the dead The bodies of the dead in Christ will rise, and then the bodies of those that are still alive in Christ will transform. We'll get our glorified bodies just as Jesus did, and then we will go out together. We'll go up together at Christ's return, and we will meet with him out sort of out in front of this world that he's about to come down to judge and to initiate his sovereign rule on the earth as it is in heaven. We go out and we meet with him, and then we go back in with him. That's what we will do. We will see Christ. We will be, have our glorified bodies and begin to rule with him on the earth. All the redeemed, together with the resurrected bodies, will receive the glorified Christ. And we will come with him to the earth, just as we learn in Second Thessalonians, to be part of the judgment of God. And I realize that for some of you, especially some of my non-Christian friends, this sounds like science fiction, right? Bodies raising up, right, right in the air. What is, right? This seems nuts. Well, friends, you should know that it was not as though the people back in those days were like more privy to such things, right? They would have thought that it was just as nuts as people today thinks it's nuts. 
But we have all kinds of uh, evidence that gives us confidence in the true uh, reality of Christ's resurrection. I could give you probably 10, I'll give you four, and they're going to go fast. That gives us confidence in the realness of the resurrection, that it's not science fiction. One would be the fact that if you're making up a lie, if you're lying about something, you would most certainly in the first century Palestine not do it by building a testimony upon women, which is exactly what the gospel writers did. The first evidences of the resurrection were women. Women back in those days would have not even had their testimony admitted in a court of law. So if you're going to make a myth up, you don't do it that way. And yet they did it that way because it's real. But another reason to build our confidence in the reality of uh, the resurrection would be the fact that Jesus rose and appeared to hundreds of people. This was not like we've seen some other false religions like Joseph Smith or uh, Muhammad and these guys that had these private revelations. No, what we have in the resurrection is Jesus is publicly appearing to hundreds and the New Testament accounts even invite you to go and talk to them while they're still alive. They're still there. Go talk to them. So it was a public resurrection. And another uh, evidence here would be uh, to explain this immediate shift in thousands of Jews from serving, worshiping on a Saturday to worshiping on a Sunday, which is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. How do you explain that? Literally within an instant, thousands changing practices from antiquity in a day in order to serve the resurrected Christ. And then fourthly, maybe for me anyway, the most plausible, most compelling argument, the Romans and the Jews were in power. They did not like the Christians. And the Christians were going everywhere. You read the book of Acts. They're talking about the resurrection more than they're talking about the Christ, which is an interesting thought we can talk about offline. But nevertheless, they love the resurrection, the conquering truth of the gospel. And so the Romans and the Jews that have all the power in the day to shut the Christians up, they could have done it with one very simple act. Just open up the grave and said the body's right there. They're lying. But of course they couldn't do that because Jesus did raise from the dead. There's four. There's more than that. But friends, the most plausible deduction is that Jesus truly did raise from the dead. And if he is God, why couldn't he? If he can speak a world into existence with words, why could he not raise a person from the dead? Resurrection of Christ, friends, is sure. And it gives confidence to us as well. And so with that consideration, Paul then writes the words that I think that are meant to be the words that would have moved their faces as they listened to this explanation. I think it would have moved their faces to wonder and gladness when he wrote, and so, as we consider this resurrection, we will always be with one. Isn't that such a beautiful truth? That we will not only be with one another, Right? I'll be with my grandmother, my granddad who loved Jesus. More importantly, we will all be together with him forever. That's the great hope. And so then Paul concludes, so encourage one another. Amidst the tremendous grief of losing loved ones in the church, the words that meant to encourage them and us and give us hope, guys, together with all the saints before and now, going out to meet the Lord Jesus and remain with him forever with Christ, with all of the redeemed, and with our own resurrected bodies, never again to be separated, but all together as it was meant to be from the beginning. Friends, this is the great hope that means to inform us in our darkest of days as a church. I get to talk about these wonderful things in the darkest of hours. As a pastor, one of the great privileges I have is to administer funerals. And these truths are so prominently in front of us on those days. 
It's a privilege because you get to uh, frame this person's death, in particular the Christian loved one, out in front of other mourners. Funerals are a unique moment in our day and time because we don't think much about death anymore. Modern medicine and homes for the elderly have pushed the thought of it away almost entirely until the news of some violent or unnatural death flash across our screens. But most people don't think about death anymore until they have to there in the funeral home. And it is there in that funeral, amidst that funeral, that the hopefulness of the Christian message shines so brightly. At the time, at the precise time when everything is at its worst, there the gospel of Jesus Christ shines brightest. There at the graveside, we uniquely have the brightest hope when everybody else in every other worldview has none. I can remember standing over the bodies of my grandmother and granddad as I officiated that funeral, two of the godliest people I'd ever known. And I said to my family that was gathered there, some of which I don't know if are Christians or not, I was able to say to them confidently, I don't have to wonder where they are and where they will be. I don't have to wonder about that. Don't make me have to lie or guess at your funerals. I said that to them. I said it to you now. But I knew about them, confident in them. And then I went on to say that nor do I have to wonder if I'll ever see them again. The wonderful thought of seeing my grandmother not as an old woman is a joyful thought. I will see her and she will see me. And we will see each other together in Christ. My grandmother will get to see her namesake, Lord willing, and the life. We will see the Lord and we will see Him together. And so on that day, I remember saying to them, as we often say, so Christian brothers and sisters, we mourn not for them. We mourn for ourselves. Because they are with Christ. And so as hard as that day was, I had the encouragement on that funeral to say what Paul says. I, I was able to read, for instance, John, uh, Job chapter 19, verses 25 to 27, when Job writes, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold not another. My heart faints within me. I was able to say that to my family. I was able to read to them on that funeral. John eleven twenty five to 26, where Jesus said, again, I am the resurrection and the life, says the Lord. He that believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And there I can say something no one else can say with confidence, and yet everybody wants. I can say in that funeral, I did say, God is not yet done with the bodies of my grandmother and my granddad. He is not done with them. He made their bodies, and he will glorify those bodies, and he will make them right together with him. That is such an amazing thing because of the sufficient work of Christ himself. What confidence, what, have, what hope we have on the darkest of days as Christians. The Book of Common Prayer says it like this. We therefore commit this body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life. The body of, of the Christian that is bared is like a seed that will bear fruit upon the return of Christ. Yes, Christians, we believe God made body and soul good, and he will not give up on what he made good. He will make it right. He will make it new, as Jesus promised. He's making all things new. Jesus is the first fruits. We will follow him. And on that day in that funeral, we sang, it is well. 
which finishes, and Lord, haste the day when the face shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. What great hope on the darkest of days. Nobody else, no other religion, no other worldview has that kind of hope but the gospel of Jesus Christ and those in that gospel. And so be encouraged, church family, with these words. We will always be with the Lord. We will always be with him. We will always be with him. No more will be separated. Always be with him. And we will always be together with him. And so we grieve, but we do not grieve as those in the world that have no such. We grieve as those that know the power of the resurrection. We know our destiny. And we know that while we must face that great river of death, unless the Lord returns, we do so with the joy of eternally bodily life with Christ and one another before us. We face that river of death knowing what's on the other side. Just think for a moment, friend, church family, just think for a moment how such a prospect can create in us a community of hope amidst a world of so much darkness and hopelessness. If we think about this more, hope in this more, give ourselves to uh, looking to it more, how much more might we be a people of hope amidst a world of hopelessness, hope in Christ's resurrection and return. We will soon see him, and we will never be apart from him. I leave you with the final words of John Collett Ryland as he spoke these words over the casket of an old Baptist pastor by the name of Andrew Gifford on July the 2nd, 1784. A wonderful, fitting way to end our consideration of this passage. There on that day, Andrew Gifford had been a pastor for many years, and he had died, and John Collett Ryland said this to the spectating crowd there. Farewell, thou dear old man. We leave you in possession of death till the resurrection day. But we will bear witness against you, O king of terrors, at the mouth of this dungeon. You shall not always have possession of this dead body. It shall be demanded of you by the great conqueror. And at that moment, you shall resign your prisoner. You ministers of Christ, you people of God, you surrounding spectators, prepare, prepare to meet this old servant of Christ at that day, at that hour, when this whole place shall all be nothing, but life and death will be swallowed up in the victory of Christ. That's our hope. That's the day that we look forward to. May it birth in us hopefulness.